Good morning, it's February 27th, 2020. This is John Watson, and this is the audio version of my Death by Tech blog post entitled Internet Folklore, The Cult of ATDT. I always get a bit nostalgic this time of year. I think it's a combination of my impending birthday and the fact that we're stuck deep into the Canadian winter at this point. And my work-from-home lifestyle has made me pretty much stir-crazy by now. But whatever the reason, today I'm reflecting on how I got where I am in my career and acknowledging that almost all of it has to do with a passion for technology rather than any kind of career plan I ever had. I never did and don't now have any idea what I want to do in a few years. I'm just one of those lucky people that does what they love and the career followed. These days my day job dictates primarily what I learned next, but that wasn't always the case in the early years. In those days, everything was wide open and new and exciting, and this post reflects on those early pre-internet years. Going back to 1983, I think? I'm not entirely sure. I can't remember the circumstances surrounding this, or the actual year, but in somewhere in the early 80s, my parents bought a Commodore VIC-20 computer. Ostensibly, it was for the family, but really, nobody had any interest in it but me, so it quickly moved from a central point in the house where everybody could access it into my bedroom. As one of the first computers aimed at regular people instead of businesses, it didn't come with a monitor, uh, pr presumably to keep it cheaper. Monitors were very expensive back then. It was designed to hook up to an existing TV set via an old RF toggle, uh, which we were familiar with in that time because the gaming consoles like Atari and uh, Sega um, used that. Sometime prior to buying the VIC-20, my parents had bought us all our own little small black-and-white TVs for our rooms. So that's what I used for the VIC-20 monitor. I don't know if the VIC-20 actually had color or not, but I never saw it in any case because I was using a black-and-white TV. Initially, my main use of the VIC-20 was gaming. Not gaming like you think today. Of those games, the game I remember the most was called Adventureland. It's a text-based adventure game where you have to perform certain actions in a certain sequence to get to the end. I played that for hours, for, I don't know, months, maybe years, I can't remember. I did reach the end a few times, but I can't remember the details now. I do remember there's something to do with a bear, uh, um, something filled with chiggers, which I learned are small biting bugs. Uh, you had to fill up a gas bladder to explode something, but that's really all I remember, probably not in that order. Somewhere along the way, I discovered the basic programming language. A friend of mine down the road had a Commodore 64 and a disk drive. For the record, the Commodore 64 was the next generation after the VIC-20, and it had more memory and more um, accessories. It was a lot faster to write and retrieve code to the Commodore 65 floppy disk drive instead of the data set that I had. A data set is basically a tape recorder. Uh, plus, he had a color TV and <laughs> a 300-baud acoustable modem. I did not have a modem at that time. I moved out of the area after a few years, and I've never seen this buddy in real life since. But those years were packed with programming and BBSing and set the stage for a lifelong love of technology. Somewhere around the same time, my junior high went, uh, junior high is grades 7 to 9, depending where you are in the world. Junior high might not make sense to you. Uh, but my junior high school went on a major computer bender. It borrowed a Volkswagen-sized Hewlett-Packard card reader from somewhere. Like, literally, this thing took up half the classroom. And my math class was put on hiatus for, I think, a month while we learned what to do with it. I still remember my math teacher, Mr. Wareham. I'll never forget Mr. Wareham. He was asking us to instruct him uh, how to stand up from a sitting position, step by step. And we'd tell him things like, straighten out your legs. So he would. But, of course, he would just straighten them out under the desk. Um, the idea being we had to tell him step by step how to do something to put us in the proper mindset for how you have to tell a computer how to do stuff because a computer knows nothing. When we and then we started penciling in the cards, because it was a card reader, uh, shoving them into the computer, and we'd marvel over the little ticker tape that would spin out of the side that printed out uh, the results of our work. 
Shortly after that, two or three, I can't remember, two or three Commodore PET personal computers showed up in a slightly largest closet at the school that became the computer room. It had a sign-up sheet to control the rush of students who wanted to use these computers, but much like the VIC-20 in my house, these Commodores weren't all that popular either, so the reality was I could use them whenever I wanted to. Around this time, I got my hands on a basic programming book. I don't know where it came from, but I did. Uh, Although I had been programming rudimentary games in basic uh, with my buddy for years now, I I didn't have any actual training. And and quite frankly, I don't know how I learned anything, because this was pre-internet, so you couldn't Google stuff. So I don't even know how I learned uh, basic programming. But this book took it to the next level. This book introduced me to concepts like peaks and pokes, which are uh, places in memory in which you can can, uh, set things and recall them. And that elevated my programming to an entirely different different level. So much so that I'd frequently run out of memory uh, programming on my VIC-20. So I would go over to my buddy's house with the Commodore 64. He was always ready to hack away. And we built some pretty impressive games for a couple of kids. We even sent one to a, I believe now defunct, company called Thorn Emmy, uh, who was a producer of video games at the time. They rejected it. But I remember at the time... Uh, it wasn't that big a deal to get a letter back saying, no, thank you. But in today, when I look back at today, uh, the standard way that companies reject you is to just never contact you again. So actually, it was pretty cool to get a rejection letter from Thorn Emmy. And uh, I, in retrospect, I wish I had kept it. My family then moved across the country. The VIC-20 disappeared somewhere. I don't know where. And my interest in computers went away with it for a few years. Let's fast forward to 1990-ish. Again, not entirely sure. By this time, I had... Totally failed to graduate high school. Uh, I'd spent many years running with what my parents still call it the wrong crowd. Uh, but somehow I'd kind of found my footing again. And I was a sous chef for a successful mid-range, mid-range casual dining chain. Somewhere around this time, my interest in computing was rekindled. I, d- I don't know why. Uh, and I bought a used laptop, or what we called a luggable in those days. It had a 20 megabyte hard drive and a monochrome blue VGA monitor. It came with Windows 3.0 installed, and my mother-in-law at the time lent me her Windows 3.1 discs so I could get all get all modern with it. I remember installing DOS, I think 6.0, maybe DOS 5 in the beginning, but eventually I had DOS 6. And then you would install Windows over top of that, because in those days Windows was not an operating system. But the important thing is that it had a 1200-baud internal modem. That was reasonably fast modem in those days, and really fast for me, because my last brush with a modem was a 300-baud acoustical modem uh, five or six years earlier. Um, I was very pleased with this device, and it totally rekindled my love for the BBS scene. DOS 6 was significant in that it had disk compression built in. Disk compression was extremely important in this era because portable storage technology was young, uh, laptops barely existed, and and they were pretty expensive and had tiny little drives. Um, So compressing data on these drives was absolutely necessary to make your system usable. These days, I don't think anyone compresses a drive anymore. We just compress files for transfer over the network. The technology in DOS 6.0 was named Double Space, but it came to light after that it was really called Stacker, and Microsoft had stolen this technology from a company named Stack, which uh, went on to successfully sue Microsoft for doing that. However, none of those legal wranglings changed what was on the dis- DOS 6 disks for me, so life just went on. Around this time, I realized there really wasn't a lot of career opportunity in chefing in North America. Uh, So while I enjoyed the work, I really liked working the evening shifts. It kind of grew old after a while, and I left it to become the assistant manager of a fast food chain. That was a really interesting time for me, and this isn't in the text version. This is like a bonus for you audio listeners. Um, (laughs) I went to work for this fast food chain as an assistant manager, and about a year after I started there, this uh, chain went through a technology upgrade installing 
new point-of-sale systems, well, mostly a new back-end system to read the point-of-sale systems uh, to correlate data from sales and stuff like that and send it off to head office. So I got drafted as a technically inclined person. I got drafted onto the field support team, and I would do that. So I would spend about three months out of the year traveling to all the different stores in our area, installing the software, hooking up the computers, and teaching managers how to use the new stuff. And then that roll-up roll out would stop because there was only so many restaurants in my city. And then I'd go back and I would be the assistant manager in some restaurant for three months. And then we'd do it all again. So I spent a couple of years kind of bouncing between being a store manager and a field support tech. By this point, my luggable VGA Beastie wasn't faring very well. The built-in monitor completely failed at this point, and I was basically just using it as a desktop with an external monitor plugged into it. So the time had finally come to buy my first new computer. In an outlet store of the only computer chain in town, which was a very young, at the time, Future Shop. Future Shop is now gone entirely from Canada. I found a lot of computers, but none of them were recognizable, really. Like, I came from, you know, my frame of reference, despite this luggable I had, was that, you know, there were different types of computers. There were Commodores and Amigas and stuff like that. But by the early 90s, I mean, technically that was the case, but not really. They were all just beige boxes uh, sitting on the shelf. And what really mattered was what was inside of them. Those were the days when you had to actually uh, know what software you wanted to run on at first so you could look up the system requirements to make sure the computer you bought would be able to support it. Those days are pretty much gone now because computers are so powerful you can run anything on them. But I kind of had a vague clue what I was looking for because my luggable uh, that just died, I kind of knew the specs on that. So I ended up baud a 486DX30 uh, with a 2400 baud internal modem. The DX is important because an SX, a 486SX, uh, has a certain type of CPU without a math coprocessor. And the DX has a coprocessor built into the chip. And the difference in that in performance is substantial because when the CPU can do the math itself, instead of offloading that to something down the bus, the performance of it is faster. So DXs were more expensive than SXs. And the 2400 in a bought internal modem was double what I was used to from my luggable several years ago. Uh, I briefly flirted with the idea of buying a 14.4 uh, modem, 14.4 kilobits, but they were still prohibitively expensive. I don't remember how much they were, but too much for me to afford at that time. So I set up for the 2400. It was around this time also that I learned the difference between baud and bits per second, which are related, but not the same thing. But that's far too boring for a blog post, so I won't go into that. I took this thing home in many boxes, and I set it all up. Windows 3.1 came pre-installed, so I didn't have to mess around with DOS or Windows. And the hard drive was big enough that I didn't, I don't recall having any space issues. But what I did have was a Super VGA color monitor, which was just blowing my mind. Pretty much, pretty much all monitors by that point were VGA. Uh, but Super, and VG, I can't remember the details now, uh, but Super VGA added uh, another 65,000 colors or something, another, another bit to it. It was this. It was with this computer that I discovered multi-line BBSs, online MUDs, real-time chat, internet shell accounts, and email and news groups using uh, shell tools like Pine and Elm. Internet shell accounts were available on some BBSs. Uh, there were more expensive graphical slip and PPP connections uh, at some places, but that that was just too expensive for me at that time. Several years later, I went to college for a computer information systems program. I did a stint in the Navy, and my career properly started. But these BBS and early, early internet years uh, was the era that laid the foundation for, the, for my love of technology. A lot of that technology is still in use today, albeit it's hidden behind the shiny exterior of the modern internet. 
Next, let's talk about the single-line BBS years. There were hundreds of BBSs in my local area code in those days. Partially because the world was a smaller place and there were fewer area codes, uh, but also because it took some technological chops to connect to a BBS and understand what to do with it. Therefore, a lot of BBSs, a lot of BBS users were also BBS sysops who liked BBSs and ran their own. So most people you saw on the bulletin boards that day in those days were also sysops of their own board. The vast majority of BBSs were one-line hobby boards, and most of us had long lists of BBSs we liked. Because we knew that the chances of connecting to any given one was slight, so we'd move on to the next one in the list when we got a busy signal. Almost everyone used Windows in those days. There were a few people with Apple computers, and in fact, I knew one guy who ran, I think it was Hermes? It was actually a BBS software on his Apple, hmm, I'm not sure what model it was, but that was pretty rare stuff. This even predates the Linux kernel, uh, so there was literally zero... Nix-type people in the world, uh, outside of RMS's free software group, which I don't think anybody had even heard of back then. The class of software used to connect to BBS systems were serial terminal programs, but we usually just called them terminal programs, or sometimes dialers. The preeminent terminal program of the day was Procom Plus, and it had all the features we ever wanted, like speed dialing, dialing lists, and modem volume control. Windows came with a very, very basic terminal program called HyperTerminal. And the standard way of setting up a new computer was to use the built-in hyperterminal program just long enough to log into a BBS and download a better terminal program. <laughs> Much like people today on a new Windows computer use Internet Explorer once, just long enough to go to getfirefox.com, download Firefox, and then never use Internet Explorer again. The single-line BBSs were basically drop-by stops. They had very short session limits, usually 20 minutes, uh, which was kind of enough to check if anyone had left you mail, check on the message echoes, and maybe download some software. Although, in the slow 1200 baud and less days, it was not always possible to download an entire file within the short time limit you would have on a BBS. That was a big problem, but the universe answered our prayers with a download protocol named Zmodem. Zmodem had a lot of benefits that were oblivious to most of us, except for one very important one. Zmodem supports resumable downloads. So, if I log into a BBS with a short limit, and, I try, and I'm downloading a piece of shareware, but I get disconnected halfway through, then eventually, when I reconnect back to that BBS and, re, and, and download that same file, Zmodem will be like, aha, I already have the first half of that file, so I'll just pick up halfway through. It was a total game changer with Zmodem, and it allowed much larger files to be transferred uh, through multiple sessions. Most bulletin board systems in those days participated in FidoNet or one of the other FIDO technology networks, FTNs they were called, because FidoNet was the first one and it kind of set the standard for how messages should be formatted and transferred uh, across the globe. So these were messaging networks. A BBS owner could choose to install, could just run a BBS, or if, if the sysop wanted to join one of the FTN networks, he could install additional software kind of in front of the BBS, software that would actually answer the phone first. Um, called a mailer and mail tossing software. So in that scenario, the user would dial into the BBS, the, the mailer would answer the phone, quickly ascertain that this was not another FidoNet calling, this is an actual person, and pass the call to the BBS. But if it was another FIDO uh, technology network site calling, then it would identify that and the two mailers would talk and exchange messages. Um, these The public messages were what we call forums now, but they're called echoes back then because they literally were. I would write something on one board, 
And through the FTN uh, transfer network, it would get duplicated or echoed across the globe. And there was direct private-ish email. Um, it could be read by the sysops of the systems, and, and nobody really used encryption those days. So I wouldn't really say it was private, but the idea was it was, it was private. And that was called netmail. A BBS sysop who wanted to join one of these networks basically had to create an account on a BBS that was already part of that network, like FidoNet or whatever it was, and go into a specially designated echo and ask for access. And the, the BBS sysop would basically have to provide some basic information, such as the node name, like the name of the BBS, uh, the node phone number, because that's how they talked, and uh, confirm that the, the sysop would observe zone mail hour. What is zone mail hour? That is the hour every night when FTN networks would call each other and collect and drop off messages. In order for the whole system to work, there had to be a period of time during the day in which uh, every system would not ha would have one available line for the mailer to connect to to exchange messages. So if you had a multi-line BBS, you only had to have one available uh, during zone mail hour. If you had a single-line BBS, you had to kick users off for that hour to allow the mailers to connect. Today, the internet is used to transfer messages, and yes, FIDO uh, and other FTN networks still exist, uh, but they're all Telnet now. So zone mail hour doesn't really apply anymore because you can just by its nature have multiple connections. So even if people are logged into the BBS, when a mailer calls, the mailer can still connect and drop off the mail. So zone mail hour is still, still kind of a thing, but it's not really enforced much anymore. Now on to the multi-line BBS years. Eventually, BBS software and, and operating systems improved uh, to the point where uh, BBS could support multiple lines. A few enterprising people stood up multi-line BBSs, and the early multi-line BBSs had a separate phone number for each node. So you had to have multiple entries for those BBSs in your dialer. Um, because if you called the first one and it was busy, your dialer would move on to the second one, even though it's the same board, but a different phone number. Only a very few and they were usually commercial, BBSs had the technology and money to have like a single number uh, to round robin to all their open nodes. Initially, multi-line wasn't such a big deal because all the multiple lines really did was increase your odds of being able to connect to the BBS. But soon, developers and other people realized that if you have, a mul if you have multiple people online at the same time, why not allow them to interact? It was during those years that the multi-user dungeons and real-time chatting came into being. Those things changed the BBS scene forever and pushed it towards what the internet would eventually become. My board of choice was a BBS named Nucleus in Canada. Nuke still exists as an ISP now, but it shut down its BBS quite a long time ago now. Nuke ran a very expensive and amazing piece of BBS software called Major BBS by a company named Galacticon. It had capabilities no other BBS had, and even though there were other multi-line BBSs in the area, Nucleus became the gold standard and was able to collect subscriptions from us. Uh, subscription fees, which is a feat that few other BBS had managed to accomplish. Nucleus used to co-locate with a book and tabletop gaming store called the Sentry Box, uh, but it's come a long way now. Once we were able to interact with other users in real time, the world opened up. For example, we had MUDs. Major BBS had a ton of games built specifically for it, and therefore they generally outperformed most of the other games of the era. Most of the other games of the era were what's called door games. Uh, door being a text file format that all BBS games understood, and bulletin board systems would understand how to write these files. So the idea is any BBS game could be played on any BBS uh, as long as both sides of that understood is a door.info file or a 
door.sysfile, drop.sysfile, I can't remember the name anymore. But that's how they communicated things like what user is this and what level are they at between the door game and the BBS. And they were called door games because you'd log into the BBS and you would go to the games menu and you'd say, I want to play this game. At that point, you would exit out, I'm making air quotes, the door uh, of the BBS into the game. None of that is in the written part of this. That's just a bonus for you audio people. So let's keep in mind that uh, almost all of these games were text-based, uh, mostly variations of MUDs, um, although some had rudimentary ASCII graphics. My favorite of all the games was a game called Mutants, which only ran on major BBS, therefore only Nuke had it. It was during Mutants play that I learned about what modern-day gamers complain about now, lag. But in dial-up scenario, the lag is not due to internet congestion because there is no internet involved, and you have a one-to-one -one direct connection to the BBS over the phone lines. The lag came from modem speed. Mutants made no attempt to homogenize user speeds, so if you had a nice speedy 14.4 modem, then you could literally run circles around some other person in the game with a 1200 baud modem. It had the potential to be ghastly unfair, and I distinctly remember, I, you know, I had a slower modem, I'd be, you know, in the forest, and the game would tell me, you hear someone run by. Okay. B but I never saw that person. And it's because that person had a much faster modem. So the game was aware of that and would let you know something happened. But if that person decided to attack me, I would have absolutely, I'd be dead before I even knew it. But despite all of that, I don't recall that being a problem during gameplay. So I'm not really sure how that was fixed or how that worked. But it, Mutants wasn't a game where all of the high-speed modem users, you know, ruled over the low-speed modem users. Somehow it all still worked out. And then there's chat. I recall only three multi-line boards in my area code in those years. Nucleus, Octopode, and Chatline. I think Chatline was also a paid BBS, but it was less game-like and more chatty, as the name suggests, which really wasn't of interest to me. Uh, so I think I had an account on Chatline, but I didn't use it much. And Octopode, I remember, as being one of those multi-line BBSs with eight different phone numbers, which is why it was Octo. I guess that made sense, because it was a free BBS, if I recall correctly, which means the sysops were footing the bill for those lines themselves, and somehow adding features like single phone number would push that bill even higher, so that made sense. Being a free multi-line BBS, Octopode was overrun with users that were even younger than myself at the time. It was hard to find a free line, wasn't really my crowd, so I didn't use it much. Major BBS Chad had a lot of features that were familiar from IRC and also allowed some customization, such as custom entry messages. I remember that being fun. You'd be sitting in the chat room talking to people, and uh, all of a sudden, some message would come across. Suddenly, the fog clears, and in walks Doglier, dragging his dog bowls behind him. Uh, and there, that was Doglier entering the chat. It's, it was a neat little, little feature that I don't think any other uh, place had. A great deal of fun in chat came from sabotaging newbies that did not have a good understanding of how their modem worked. I'm sure that this is arcane knowledge again by now, so I'll recap a bit how modems work. Recall that modems negotiate a serial connection over the phone line, and once that connection is established, everything uh, you type is just pushed through that serial pipe to the other end, to the bulletin board system. But you still need to maintain control of the modem to tell it to do things like hang up when you're done. So to allow, users to, set, to allow users to send commands to the modem and also to the connected system, there needs to be some kind of signal to the modem so it knows to take that next thing you're about to send as a command and not as something it should push through to the BBS. That is called the command set, more specifically the Hayes command set, which is also uh, colloquial known as the AT command set because all of the modem commands start with AT, well, most of them. Beginning a string with AT tells the modem to pay attention, AT, attention, to what comes next because it's a modem command, not something to be sent through the pipe to the other end. The most common AT command is ATDT 
and then a phone number. ATDT means AT means attention. DT means dial using touch tones. That tells the modem to use tone dialing to dial the numbers that you just gave it. There's also an ATDP for dial using pulse, which is the clicks. Click, 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 click. I've never used that though. Other useful commands are ATHO, which causes the modem to hang up, H0. ATLO, which tells the modem or, or shuts the volume of the modem off, level zero. That's very useful in the middle of the night because modems are very, very noisy when they connect, and uh, your parents don't want to hear that coming out of the bedroom. You can also just send a plain uh, string of three plus signs, plus, 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 no AT in front of it. What that does is it puts the modem into command um, mode entirely, whereas the AT commands, it just takes the next thing you send as a command and then drops out of command mode. Plus, plus, plus drops into command mode permanently. So you can probably see now how it become pretty easy to see the sport in tricking new users into typing things like ATH0 and punting themselves from the board. Or another common trick was to macro bomb a user off the board uh, by sending private messages in chat at a rate fat to a user at a rate faster than their modem could handle. Most modems will just congest and hang up. Major BBS eventually introduced rate limiting for private messages to prevent this, but it was a pretty good working tactic to get people uh, who annoyed you off the board. Wrapping up, I'm just going to move on. The next few years were magical all over again because suddenly SLIP and PPP graphical internet connections became affordable. Suddenly we weren't staring into the black terminal screen anymore. We were using things like web browsers and email clients, and all of a sudden the web was graphical. That was another wild time to live through, but I'll leave that era for a different post. I remember the modem and BBS era very fondly. I have a lifelong friend from those days that I met online, and we've remained friends ever since, despite never having worked together or attended school together. So just think about that for a bit. Pretty much every other friend I have, I either worked with or I went to school with. It's very unusual to have a friend that you did not meet in one of those kind of standard ways that, has remained, that remains a friend for, for life. My first contact with technology was the VIC-20, where I learned programming. And my friend's Commodore 64 with a modem is where I learned that there's a whole world outside my bedroom window that I knew nothing about, full of possibilities. That 300-baud acoustical modem kickstarted an entire lifetime and career in technology for me. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this. If you are a subscribing member, you can come to the Death by Tech site and like or comment on this post. Thank you.